40th anniversary, prepared to proceed. Whether considering the person Moses who invested 40 years of preparation to be a rescuer or the people Israel who spent 40 years of preparation for a fresh start or the planet Earth which experienced 40 days of preparation for the entire future or the prophet Jesus who for 40 days of preparation was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin each during the trial period of 40 was being prepared to proceed. This is written on the inside panel of our anniversary brochure. I wrote it a number of weeks, maybe even months ago, how that God used the number 40 many times in scripture as a preparatory phase only to proceed in a new and in most cases a radically different Direction. So our 2005-2006 church theme is prepared to proceed. And we begin this theme this morning by considering a very familiar event in God's dealing with earth and with the inhabitants of earth. So I direct your attention to Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8. Just going to skip around in those chapters as we consider pre- preparation through purging the historical event of Noah and the flood. Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8. If you would make your way there, preparation through purging. And the first thing I'd like us to consider is found in chapter 6, and that is there is a problem with all the world. There is a problem which was discovered, which came to light, which was growing in intensity with all the world. And we see that in Genesis chapter 6, Verses 1 through 5, then verses 11 and 12. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair. And they took them wives of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men and uh, they bore children to them, the same became mighty men of uh, who were of old men of renown or who were notorious. And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 11. The earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence and God looked upon the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. Mankind had gone in just a few hundred years from a state of perfect bliss in a beautiful garden paradise, enjoying the warmth of the love of God, the God of creation. They had gone to a state of fallenness and beyond that to a state of condemnation to corruptible type of living mankind degenerated and continued to degenerate through the godless line of Cain until we got to this point in verse five that God saw the wickedness and every imagination of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually not only his heart and mind but his actions played out there was a problem with all the world and three points uh, sub points on this uh, consideration if you will just by way of theology 
First of all, man is spiritually dead. Now, you at this church certainly understand that. You've been taught this. Uh, I have preached it. And scripture is replete on this subject that man is dead in his trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, 1. It's very clear in the word of God uh, that it teaches us. That is the nature of a lost person is separated from God. Whereas we who know Christ have been raised from deadness and given new life. Those who are um, lost are still, in fact, spiritually dead. And this spiritual deadness played out or or, um, resulted in what happened in verses two and verse four. That is um, the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair. And then in verse four, there were giants in the land in those days. Who are these sons of God? Who are these daughters of men? There have been several interpretations suggested. Uh, I want to offer um, the errant views, frankly, and uh, give you uh, the correct view. And you say, well, that's somewhat uh, arrogant, isn't it? Well, if I didn't think it was the correct view, I wouldn't hold to it. Isn't that right? Don't we naturally, if we think this is the view, it follows that it's because we think it's the correct view. So I offer these views to you. I believe the first three are uh, incorrect. Unbelievers uh, have suggested that this is simply a mythical story, that um, there was just a myth or it was folklore or it was superstition or something like that. But we must reject that particular idea because it's written in the word of God and it says it happened. Therefore, we believe, in fact, it did happen. And so we don't accept at all the idea that it was a myth. Some have suggested that the sons of God were the godly line of Seth and that the daughters of men were the godless line uh, of Cain. That could follow. That could make sense. That seems to be theologically consistent, except for the context says that the union of these uh, uh, two folks brought about giants, brought about notorious monsters who were roaming over all the earth. And so the godless line of Cain and the godly line of Seth would not have uh, 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 procreated a group of notorious monsters. So we reject that as a consideration. It's been suggested that the sons of God are nobility uh, simply marrying commoners, but the context doesn't, again, allow that. It doesn't have any uh, contextual meaning. The context, though, demands a supernatural interpretation. The phrase, the sons of God, are fallen angels and the daughters of men are simply human women. And the proof for this is that phrase, sons of God, is unique to this passage and three passages in the book of Job, Job 1.6, 2.1, and 38.7, all of which clearly are referring to angels. And so it is consistent and it, it can be argued that the correct view is that these are fallen angels who have incarnated themselves into the men of the earth. These men were so evil they were so uh, dead in their in their uh, their spiritual nature that uh, the uh, the demons took up residence and in fact uh, incarnated into them. You say, well, wait a minute. Jesus said that in the resurrection, men and women uh, are not going to be married, but they're going to be like the angels of God in heaven. And in fact, Matthew twenty two thirty says that. But right now, though, angels do have activity on the earth. Hebrews chapter thirteen says that we can in fact um, entertain or we can be engaged by angels and not even be aware of it. And so since angels, good angels, uh, seraphim and cherubim do the bidding of the Holy One, it's uh, certainly uh, clear that the evil angels, the fallen angels, demons do the bidding of the unholy one. And so they have incarnated themselves. They have taken up flesh, as it were. They have, uh, these men were demon possessed and produced a, a line, a strain of some strange folks 
notorious monsters, really, is the idea of verse four. It was a spiritually dead time. The whole earth covered with unredeemed God haters, alienated from the life of God, of course, except Noah and his family. Man is spiritually dead. And that's still the case in our day. You know, we hear about all these evil things going on and and wicked child abuse and all kinds of things and and mass murders and, and all kinds of mutilations and all. Folks, there's probably a lot of demon possession out there that we just in our day, maybe we're too sophisticated. Maybe we just don't recognize it. My guess is that's probably still going on. There's probably still demon possession going on in our, not probably, certainly there is demon possession going on in our day. Man in his nature is spiritually dead. Secondly, man is sinfully depraved. Notice in verse five, every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now this phrase, every imagination of his thoughts comes from uh, the word for pottery or to fashion as a potter, one who is a potter. Depraved mankind, those who are outside, uh, fashion their lives or they mold their lives and their society after the evil dictates of their hearts. And that follows. Jesus said, for out of the heart proceeds adulteries and murders and blasphemies. And uh, so we understand from the word of God that man in his, um, in his action and in his reaction, he operates from a sinfully depraved uh, state. A spiritually dead nature results in sinfully depraved behavior. Thirdly, Not only is man dead, not only is he depraved, man is eternally doomed. Sin always brings judgment. It did in our text here in the book of Genesis, and it will for all of time. People believe that they can sin with impunity. And Noah was hammering out the message of repentance and faith. He was hammering out the message of turn from judgment for 120 years and without one single convert outside of his family. Man feels like he can sin and get away with it with impunity. I don't have to answer to God. There isn't a God anyway uh, toward whom I should answer. Galatians 6 verse 7 would differ with that. It says, be not deceived. God is not mocked for whatsoever a man soweth that shall he also reap. God isn't light on sin. If he was willing and able to destroy the whole world because of sin, I'm not going to get away with it either. You're not going to get away with it either. Either for second Chronicles 16, nine says uh, the, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. He knows what's going on in my life. He knows what's going on in your life. And if you don't know the Lord, you, it's because your, your nature is dead and your behavior is depraved. And ultimately one day there is doom and gloom promised in scripture. It was promised to this generation in Genesis chapter six. It's promised to uh, the generation generation that um, is alive at the time of the return of the Lord. There was a problem with all the world. Secondly, God brought about a preparation of the old world. There was the preparing of the old world, the preparing of the old world. Look at verses six and seven in chapter in chapter six. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing, the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Verse 13. And God said unto Noah, the end of all flesh is come before me. 
for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Verse 17. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh wherein is the breath of life from under heaven. And everything that is in the earth shall die. Verse uh, chapter seven, verse four, chapter seven, verse four. For yet seven days and I will cause it to rain upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And every living thing that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. And Noah did according to all, uh, uh, according unto all that the Lord had commanded him. Verse 12. And the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Verse 17. And the flood was 40 days upon the earth and the waters increased and bore up the ark and it was lifted up above the earth and the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth and the ark went upon the face of the waters and the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered 15 cubits upward till the waters prevail and the mountains were covered and all flesh died that moved upon the earth both the fowl and of uh, cattle and beast and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth and every man all in whose nostrils was the, was the breath of life of all that was in the dry land died and every living thing was destroyed which was upon the face of the ground both man and cattle the creeping things the fowl of heaven and they were destroyed from the earth and Noah only remained alive and they that were with him in the ark and the waters prevailed upon the earth a hundred and fifty days there was preparing of the old world. God killed off all the old world in order to bring in the new. He purged out, he removed, he cleansed the world, if you will, of that which was hindering the new from coming in. And what can we learn about this? What can we learn about the heart of God uh, when he prepares a world or when he prepares a soul for something new? We can learn, folks, that the physical illustration of the flood is a picture of condemnation and the physical illustration of the ark is a picture of redemption. In other words, um, there is preparation for that individual as well. And that preparation is the old has to go. That old nature has to be killed. It has to be crucified. It has to be eradicated and removed so that the new man can reside in that temple. And in fact, that's what happened. Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. But it's not me. It's Christ who lives in me. And I am now now a, a new man. There is a new nature uh, that has taken the place of the old. How does God prepare the old in order to receive the new? What did he do? Well, first of all, we see in these verses that we read, God mercifully cautions of wrath. He, in his mercy, gives a warning, a very loud and clear warning. He says that, uh, look, judgment is coming. You have sinned. It's come before me. And Noah, you're going to be my preacher. As a matter of fact, it says in Second, uh, uh, Second Peter that uh, uh, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And in fact, he preached. And God sent out the warning that judgment is come. You remember, in the Garden of Eden, sin came with Adam and Eve. And God gave a warning. They knew the warning. They, they knew what God had said about eating of the, the tree of the uh, knowledge of good and evil, yet they violated the clear will of God. The very next generation with Cain and Abel, God gave a warning. He said to Cain, when God saw his heart, he cautioned him. He said in Genesis 4, 7, Cain, sin lies at the door. I'm giving you a warning. In my mercy, I'm giving you a strong word of caution. And even though Cain saw what had happened to his parents, he took God lightly. There may be some here today even this morning, that God is mercifully 
calling you to turn. He's giving you a warning. He's saying that you're not guaranteed another moment. You're not guaranteed another day. Who do you think you are that you can think you can just sin with impunity and go on your way, go on your merry way. I'm guaranteed tomorrow. I'm guaranteed the next year, the next decade. I don't have to worry about anything right now. That's what those people in Noah's day thought right up until the very time that they entered the ark were filled with ridicule and hate and scorn and disbelief. God mercifully cautions of wrath to come. What else does he do to prepare? God patiently calls to repent. God patiently calls to repent. How do you flee from God's wrath? Not by coming up with some kind of an idea, not by some newfangled approach. He simply turn and cast and fall on his mercy. Say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. You repent, you turn to him. That's why, in fact, the Lord Jesus came, God in the flesh, to live a perfect life, to die a cruel death on a cross in order to meet the just demands of the holy law of God, which you broke and I broke. And I deserved that treatment. I deserved the judgment. But God called me to repent as he does all for Acts 17, 30 says God now commands all men everywhere to repent. And so God patiently calls to repent. Pam and I were talking uh, this weekend about a, a particular believer who in time past had injured us or caused caused harm. Unwittingly, unintentionally or intentionally, who can who can know somebody's motive? And I got to thinking later that day and this person was regretful about it. And uh, and I received this one in a, in a conversation and uh, as it were embraced over in, in a, over the phone conversation. And I thought to myself, what this one did or caused to happen or allowed to happen in my life doesn't even measure on the scale of what I did to put the nails in his hands and feet, to put the spear in his side. Amen. Can you, can you relate to that? Is that right? It doesn't even, it's not even a blip on the oscilloscope in intensity and in quantity and quality of evil that I poured out upon him by his stripes. We're healed. Verses six and seven in chapter six, this idea of God repenting. Notice in, in chapter six, verses six and seven. You see, the heart of God is broken over evil choices. God does not delight in judgment. It says it repented the Lord that he had made man. He says, I'm going to destroy man. But he did so from a heart of grieving. I don't fully understand this, but verses six and seven tell us that the merciful heart of the God of glory was grieving over this loss, over this rebellion, over this rejection of his lordship. And so he, for 120 years of intense calling to himself, to repent, they rejected. And then in the preparation, God righteously cleanses to renewal. The past was washed clean by the flood. And folks, in your life, if you know Christ, the past was also washed clean. Amen. 
the stain is gone. When you are viewed by the court of heaven, you are declared acquitted, not guilty, forgiven. You have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, 1 John 2, 2. And so you stand before him, not condemned, but in fact, righteous and accepted in the beloved. God righteously cleanses to renew. The The flood is a picture of that. God just wiping the slate clean. He purges the sin and gets rid of it. But for those who have that offered to them, when grace is rejected, judgment must fall. So God is just. He is right. He is righteous in judging sinners. The Puritan Jonathan Edwards pointed out in his sermon titled The Justice of God in the Damnation of Sinners. Only a Puritan would title a sermon that. The Justice of God in the Damnation of Sinners. Jonathan Edwards wrote that since God is an infinitely lovely being, since he is perfect in all his ways, since he is utterly sovereign, that means he can do what he wants, that to sin against this God is to be in violation of infinite obligations. Therefore, it's worthy of infinite punishment, meaning the penalty fits the crime. The penalty fits the crime. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all this. The entire weight of the law, the condemning weight of the law, which I have violated, comes down and presses down on me. I'm guilty of all of it because I have offended That one who is infinitely perfect, holy, uh, just, good, righteous, and all wise. And I have violated that. Therefore, because of my, the infinite weight of my violation, that deserves infinite judgment. Do you follow the reasoning there? It's consistent theologically. It makes sense to us even logically. That's why the just, the Lord Jesus became the justifier on the cross because the infinite weight of sin had to be met with infinite perfection and acceptability, which only God can meet. And so a lost person has the light of scripture, has the light of creation. The heavens declare the glory of God, has the light of conscience. The law of God is written on your heart. Romans chapter two, therefore you are without excuse and the whole world has become guilty before God. For the believer, our hearts were prepared. God did give us a caution of wrath in some way, shape or form. Your heart was arrested. You came to the awareness of your sin and of your need for forgiveness. And he drew you. He gave you repentance and faith and you've been cleansed and made new. There was a preparation in your life. There was a preparation for eternity, but it took place through purging. The old was gone. The new came in. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. They've been eradicated. They've been purged. They've been obliterated by the the efficacy of the cross. That is the effectiveness of what he did on the cross the preparing of the old world. There was a problem with all the world. God prepared for a new day and there was a proceeding into the new world. 
if you would look at chapter 6 of Genesis, chapter 6 and verse 8, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 18, but with thee will I establish my covenant. Thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. And of every living thing of all flesh, too, of every sort, shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee, that they shall be male and female, of fowls after their kind, of cattle after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind. Two of every sort shall come uh, unto thee to keep them alive. <clears throat> and take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten and thou shalt gather it to thee and it shall be uh, for food for thee and for them. But uh, thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him. So did he. By the way, you, uh, you on the uh, high school and college uh, uh, campuses, uh, mark this text. Share this with your acquaintances who uh, are of an alternative uh, lifestyle and uh, hopefully uh, the word of God will uh, penetrate a sinful heart. Chapter 7 and verse 1. And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Verse 16. And they went in, went in male and female of all flesh as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Chapter 8 and verse 1. And God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained. And the waters returned from off the earth continually. And after the end of the 150 days, the waters were abated. Verse 13. And it came to pass in the 601st year. In the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from off the earth and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and behold, the face of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the seventh and 20th day of the month, the earth was dried. Verse 18, and Noah went forth and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with them. Every beast, every creeping thing, fowl and whatever creepeth upon the earth after their kinds went forth out of the ark. And Noah built an altar unto the Lord, took of every clean beast, every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. God gave Noah and his family a new day. And the physical illustration of the, of the water uh, going back and the earth coming up is an illustration of having entered into new Life. Now, what, uh, what is uh, that true of us today? How are we to proceed? With what kind of an understanding? Well, with the same kind of an understanding that Noah had. The first thing is our salvation in Christ protects us from judgment, just as it did Noah. Noah was in the ark and his family and the Lord shut him in. Speaks much of the sovereign call of God. It wasn't that Noah got up one day and said, I think I'm going to decide to, uh, to work for God and to live for God. No, not at all. Uh, the, uh, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It wasn't that God found grace in the eyes of Noah. Amen. You see the difference? You see the distinction there? Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God saw him. God touched him. God spoke to his heart and the Lord shut him in. I tell you, chapter six and verse eight is one of the strongest, uh, the, the, just the most glorious verses, I guess, really in all of scripture. Every time I come across it, I just, I, I just enter into that. And I introduce myself into that, that I found grace in the eyes of the Lord and a, and a whole world just covered with sin and, and debauchery and depravity and how I was right in the mainstream of that and how I sought it out and I pursued evil in the course of time. 
I experienced the grace, the undeserving, unmerited favor of God that he smiled upon me. And he didn't smile upon me because he knew that I would smile back. He smiled upon me when? In eternity past. That I was elect from the foundation of the world. Chosen in him according to the good pleasure of his will. Wow. Protected from judgment. You see, in verse six, chapter six and verse eight, the emphasis is not upon Noah. The emphasis is upon the grace of God. In John 1, 16, it's said, and of his fullness, the Lord Jesus, we, that is believers, have all received and grace for grace or grace upon the grace. Grace poured on top of grace, the presence of God, all of his goodness. And that have we received all things that pertain to life and godliness and we're a joint heir with Christ. What he has will receive one day in its fullness. The great theologian Henry Morris wrote, In sovereign mercy and by the election of grace, God had prepared the heart of Noah to respond in obedient faith to his will. What was his will? Follow me. I am Lord. I am King. I am Savior. Follow me. I'm the Redeemer. And Noah said, I will. I want to. And that's because of the sovereign mercy and God's gracious election, choosing Noah and his family that he said, yes, I want to enter into that ark and I want to be saved from judgment. Have you experienced that in your own life? Has God prepared you and now you are have entered in and in fact, you're resting in the ark. What else does it do? This newness. Our standing in Christ produces a change. I'm a new creature. I'm not the same as I used to be. My life has been transformed. Just like the world was new. Noah went into the ark and before he could hardly turn around, everything is new. And that's how it is when you enter into the ark. There's a change. And if there's not been a change, if Noah would have been the very same person as everyone else, he would have had to conclude that he really wasn't in the ark. He was drowned. He was killed. He was purged with the rest of sinfulness. But because he was in the ark, he was preserved and a change came about. As well as with his family who acted in faith. Our standing will produce a change. It did with Noah. And then thirdly, our security in Christ preserves us for all eternity. Look at chapter 7. Look at chapter 7 and verse 16. Chapter 7 and verse 16. They went in, male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut the door. Salvation is of the Lord. It's all of grace from beginning to end, from a a, a sovereign and unconditional election all the way to perseverance and preservation from beginning to end. It's all of him. We don't have room to glory. First Peter one five says we're kept not by our own faith, not by our own ability. We're kept by the power of God. So if you're saved today and you are secure and preserved for all eternity as you will be, It's because of his gracious omnipotence, his enabling, his ability to shut the door and not let it. Of all that I have called, I'm going to lose none. 
all that I receive, all who come to me, I'll not cast out. Have you come to him? Do you know him? Have you been prepared through purging? Your sin judged at the cross, you having entered into the ark, and now you experience a brand new day. The number 40 is very significant in Scripture. God seems to speak of it as that which prepares to proceed into something new. Are you living in the newness of life having been in the ark or not? Just be very honest in your own heart. Have you experienced the, just the awesome, mind-blowing grace of God that has captured you, forgiven you, and written a new name down in glory? If not, if that's not real to you, maybe today God in his patience and in his merciful warning is tapping you on the shoulder, is gripping you, maybe gripping your throat. Maybe you're, maybe you're being strangled, as it were. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." Amen? Grace, the goodness of God tells you to wake up. And the goodness of God, in fact, will carry you all the way into eternity. Lord, I'm thankful for this, your word, how we were...